0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 29, Blah Blah. Today I'll be joined by Mike Abendroth from No Compromise Radio to talk about the biblical gift of tongues. I'll issue this warning in advance. Many of you listening might already share Mike's in my view of tongues, but still many others of you probably will not. I hope that those of you listening will carefully and prayerfully consider the biblical evidence it will be presenting and the counter-arguments it will be addressing, and if in the end you don't agree with us, I sincerely hope that won't dissuade you from listening. I think that for the most part, this issue is one Christians uh, don't need to divide over, even though we likely have very strong, differing opinions about it. And I encourage you to email me if you want to discuss it further, which, as it turns out, several people have done this past week to talk about other issues. You know, I don't give out my email address in the podcast very often, and I don't really know why. It's it's not intentional, and I certainly list it at the homepage of the podcast. It's theapologetics at hotmail.com. In this past week, I've gotten emails on a variety of topics. A listener to Dr. Glenn Peoples' podcast named Ronnie, who listened to the three episodes of my podcast in which I interviewed Glenn, emailed me to talk a little bit about physicalism and annihilation, which I enjoyed and will probably talk about in future episodes. Another listener named Pete emailed me challenging me about Calvinism or the Reformed Doctrine of Salvation, which is ongoing and which I'm thoroughly enjoying. Yet another listener named Dave emailed me saying that he enjoys my podcast and particularly enjoyed my interviews with Steve Hamm from Answers in Genesis and with Jim Wallace from please convince me. Uh, in fact, Jim read an email Dave wrote to him in the most recent episode of his podcast, which I thought was very well written and I would encourage you to listen to. And still, another listener named Luke emailed me to ask me to reconsider my belief in the dual nature of Jesus Christ—that uh, he's both divine and human. Now, perhaps it goes without saying that you know I had the strongest feelings to share with that last listener, but even then, I try to be gentle and respectful. And you know, Luke, if you're listening, I hope you feel that I was. And I guess my point is just that I try to take the time to respond to everybody who emails me with questions and challenges, so long as they're respectful in doing so. Now, of course, with as few emails as I'm getting, I'm better able to respond in a timely fashion than I will be as the number of emails I get increases, in which case it will probably become more and more difficult to respond quickly. But, you know, at least for the time being, if you'd like to talk a little bit over email about whatever topic interests you, um, I'll be able to give you at least a little bit of my time. So I'd encourage you to do that, as I'd love to hear from you. And Next up in my promo rotation is R.C. Sproul's Renewing Your Mind podcast.
1: Stay tuned. Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul is next. In our quorum
0: Deo thought for today, let me say to you, dear friends, that you may not want Christ. You may not want to be bothered with religious things, but dear friend, you need Christ. You know you're not perfect. You know that you're not holy, and you know that God is holy. And the biggest problem you will ever face in your existence is how to reconcile that problem. And what Christianity is all about is that righteousness has been achieved by somebody else for me and for all who put their faith in him. God provides what you need. R.C. Sproul is awesome, and he's one of my favorite teachers, apologists, and theologians. You can check out his podcast and a variety of other resources by going to www.ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R.org if you click on ministries and then renewing your mind radio and then click on podcast you'll be able to subscribe for free to the podcast i highly recommend you do so and with that let's move into today's interview I'm joined today by Mike Abendroth, a senior pastor at Bethlehem Bible Church in West Boylston, Massachusetts, and host of No Compromise Radio, Uh, and we're going to be talking about the gift of tongues. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mike.
1: Uh, I'm glad to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, before we get started, you're leaving for Israel in less than a week. Is that right? Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, I'm supposed to go to Israel in one week, and then, Chris, our extension was to take us to Egypt and fly out of Cairo. And so, since I always talk about the sovereignty of God... It's now time for me to live it out since I have had to cancel my Egypt trip. Oh, no. Uh, But we're going to go to Israel anyway, and so it'll be wonderful. I enjoy looking at the Sea of Galilee, for instance, because you can't have people build cathedrals on that place. And so you just need to see and walk around really makes the bible come alive and I'll be taking a group there next week.
0: Nice. Well, that's awesome. Well, I like to start my interviews by asking guests to tell me about their testimonies. Uh, can you tell us about yours? I mean, were you raised to believe in Christ or did you come to Christ later in
1: life? Uh, Chris, I was born a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't know whether to be, you know, and go into no-compromise style or just uh answer straight up. So, I'll answer straight up. I was raised in a Lutheran home. A fairly liberal Lutheran home and basically I translate that as my father would stay at home and my mother would take us occasionally and so I grew up as a monotheist I grew up thinking that you know there was really a Jesus I did not believe that there was some other God he was the only God I believe that he died for sins and was raised from the dead and pretty much the stories uh, that I learned from the church were true Uh, The only problem was they taught us that you were saved at baptism, and Mm -hmm. so we always thought we were in. There was no desire for repentance or saving faith or anything like that, and so I grew up in the Lutheran Church and for a long time thought I was a Christian. I even argued with a lady in California when I was about 23. She was in some weird cult, and she was going to introduce me to a man named Jesus Christ, and I said, really? The Jesus Christ of the Bible? She said yes and and then she said, I have a picture of him and she showed me some guy that had, you know, sideburns and (laughs) so I was arguing as an unbeliever that Jesus was the only way. And it just showed me that just like James two says, you can have an intellectual faith that's not a saving faith because even the demons believe and tremble. Mm. So that was my background, it's liberal Lutheranism. Wow.
0: Well, how did it become something more meaningful?
1: Well, I was uh, dating a girl at the time. or wanted to date her, and she would eventually be my wife, and she was into church, and I thought, you know what? That would be good. I was like most people in America, I think, in suburbia. Let's go to church because it's wholesome. It's for families. You can learn some good moral principles. It's good to be good. It's nice to be nice. It's nice to go to church. And uh Fascinatingly, driving home one day with about five people in the car, I said, To a man, when he asked me this question, are you a Christian? I said, of course I'm a Christian. And he looked at me, Chris, like I was lying. And the look was basically, you call yourself a Christian, but the way you live your life, you ought not to do that.
0: Hmm.
1: I have never really hit people before, maybe on the football field or the basketball court, but I wanted to hit the guy because he challenged my salvation. And so I began to think. I remember right where I was, on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, I began to think, you know, if I die, will I really go to heaven? I say that I'm a believer, but it's just some kind of little accept Jesus in your heart. And I went on a missions trip to Mexico and went backpacking with a bunch of Christians, and I think I'm in. So my father, uh, simultaneously, is dying of cancer. I began to read the Bible. And of all things, Chris, I began to listen to Christian radio. And I was a sales rep began to listen to radio all the time in the car instead of listening to punk rock and everything else that I liked. And I found people who would teach the Bible surprisingly, fascinatingly, verse by verse. I'd never thought of that before. (laughs) I'd never heard of that before. You know, verse by verse teaching. And I listened to one guy, and he was very knowledgeable, but to me at the time seemed dry and academic. But I was drawn to continue to listen. And his name was John MacArthur. So I listened to John for a long time, and I listened to a guy named Raul Reese. I don't know if you know him. He was a Calvary is a Calvary Chapel pastor, uh, West Covina now Diamond Bar, I think. And so I began to go to church there in West Covina. And I don't know how I actually got saved in terms of the timing. I just began to read the Bible, and I probably prayed the Sinner's Prayer, walked the aisle in my mind 500 times. And so it was 1989. Uh, between reading the scriptures myself, hearing Bible preaching on the radio, and in person, uh, that God saved me. Uh, so that was 1989.
0: Mm, that's great. Well, you know, you host a show that I stumbled upon not long ago, and that I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed since. It's called No Compromise Radio. What led you to create that show, and, what, and what's your goal? What's its mission?
1: Well, I've always loved radio, and I think it goes back to when I first got saved. The Lord used radio uh, in my life, and so. I, d- I dabbled around with some shows here and there. And a guy here locally in Massachusetts needed to go out of town for a couple weeks and asked me if I would guest host the show. It was called Engaging Your World uh, here in Worcester, Massachusetts. So I did the shows and I was very nervous and you know, when you're nervous, Chris, you just talk super fast. And <laughs> I was all around and, but I think the Lord blessed it because as we said off air, as you said to me, that God blesses his word and his work through weak vessels. And so I, I enjoyed it, and then the radio station said to me about three months later, would you like your own show? Wow. So I said, you know, let me think about it, pray about it. I said yes, but then I had to figure out a format, because what do you call your show? What do you do? Uh, the Puritans used to say, nobody preaches a better gospel. Uh, no, a lot of people preach the gospel better than I do, but nobody preaches a better gospel. Mm-hmm. So. If I'm not MacArthur, if I'm not Piper, if I'm not R.C. Sproul, if I'm not S. Lewis Johnson, I mean, people aren't going to turn in tune in necessarily. So I wanted to have a format that would be unusual, would be kind of maybe pushy a little bit, provocative. Uh, people would tune in just to to maybe disagree with me. Uh, I'd have you know Roman Catholics tune in because they just wonder what I was going to say next. So actually, it was my wife's idea for the title, No Compromise. Because it's just kind of catchy, you know, in the world we live in, you've got to catch people with titles and little snippets, and you've got to keep them, of course, with substance and being biblical. But uh, that's how it was born a couple years ago. I think I'm in, you know, 420 shows in or something. Wow. And most days I really like taping the shows uh, before you go to Israel, and you have to tape 10 in about two days. I'm not so sure how much I like it right now. (laughs) So we've got a little slogan, as you know, Chris, always biblical, always provocative, always in that order. And so I want to teach the Bible in a way that's interesting. I hope 12-year-olds listen. I know some do. I like to teach teenagers and college students as well, older folks. And I just want to try to goad them into thinking biblically. What you believe in your mind about God, Tozer said, is the most important thing about you. So I just try to teach the Bible five days a week for a half hour a shot. And the Lord blesses his word as always. And that's probably no compromise radio. I'm actually wearing a little beanie right now. We just got new beanies. No compromise radio ministry beanies. I should send you one, but I think you live in warm climate.
0: <laughs> well, no, actually, it's pretty cold here, actually. Uh, yeah, please do send me one. That'd be awesome.
1: <laughs> okay, I, I I will. I will. No compromise radio uh, beanie for you.
0: Great. Yeah, and, and I'll have you uh, tell my listeners at the end of the interview where they can get plugged into your show, because I definitely want them to listen. Now, the the first shows that I listened to when I found your show were some episodes on the topic of tongues that we're going to be talking about today, and in those episodes, you talk a little bit about some experiences that you've had with the charismatic movement and with so-called tongues. Can you tell us briefly about some of those?
1: Well, now we have uh, TV and radio and podcasts and all that, so it's pretty easy to get exposure to charismatic theology, plus it's in the mainstream. But 25 years ago, it was a little more difficult. You'd have to get a video or you'd have to go to churches yourself. Uh, In the Lutheran church that I was attending, my father was dying. They asked if anybody needed prayer, and my family and I went up, and they put hands on us and began it was more of a whisper. It was kind of sounding like some kind of snake charmer or something. I'd never really heard of it before, but I, I knew tongues in general was something like that. And they began to uh, do a lot of whispering, kind of talking. And my mom said later, you know, that's speaking in tongues. So that was my first experience. My second experience was my mother went to some crusade. She went up to the front. They tried to slay her in the spirit and get her to speak in tongues and kept pushing her forehead. But she, with biblical resolution... Mm-hmm put her head firmly against the guy and wouldn't get knocked over. So I guess they probably thought she didn't have enough faith. Yeah. And then I began to go to churches. Uh, my wife, before we were married, she grew up in a conservative Baptist church and then was looking maybe for something different. So we started going to charismatic churches, church on the way in California, Jack Hayford. I just started going to a lot of different churches, Vineyard down in Anaheim with John Wimber. And so that's kind of my experience with... Charismatic churches, Calvary Chapel, that's the first church that I attended. I would call them conservatively charismatic. Uh, believing, speaking in tongues is is uh, for today. And so that's kind of my background. I love charismatics. Like I said, you know, I married a charismatic. I don't think she's probably charismatic anymore, but that's my brief background. So I, I have been around the block a little bit. You know, you go to a Benny Hinn crusade uh, here or there, take guys out for field trips. That's probably the extent of it.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, based on like the the slaying and the uh, spirit experiences that you've seen, and at Benny Hinn and, and all those other places, based on those experiences, why do you think that the various questions surrounding tongues, specifically like the ones that we're going to talk about, and the charismatic movement overall, why do you think these questions are important? I mean, uh, you know, are they just really academic questions with no practical value, or are there dangers in answering them the wrong way? And as as I think you and I would say, charismatics often do.
1: Well, I think it's a good qu- question, Chris. What happens is. Uh, if you look at a big picture, there are very many godly people who want everything that God has for them. And they just aren't taught or they don't know. Uh, they haven't sat down and uh, read the scriptures maybe as they ought to have. But they really are desiring godliness and mm. desiring to increase in practical righteousness. And they want to be more like Christ. And so uh, it's important because a lot of people caught up in the charismatic movement are real Christians desiring real godliness, real fruit of the Spirit, and they want everything that God has for them. And certainly I do, too. I'm sure you do, too. Yeah. So I think it's important because it's not like everybody's some weird shaker running around, uh, you know, a Janist uh, chanting and and uh, acting like pagans. And so, uh, you know, we could turn on TBN and we could probably see some of that. But I think it's an important topic because there are lots of Christians who need to be taught the truth, and I don't think they've studied uh, they don't know what the word tongues means. They don't know what a language is. They don't know the biblical definition of it. They don't know the difference between Acts 2 tongues and First Corinthians 12. And, you know, it's all driven, Chris, by experience. This is an experience-driven world, and people want to have an experience. And that old, dry, dusty book, the Bible, <laughs> might be fine, but we we want to have an experience. And so... Uh, I think to answer your question in summary, number one, because there are dear people in the movement that I'd like to be able to educate, and number two, uh, because uh, it's too top-heavy on experience. I, I want people to experience God, but I want them to experience him uh, from revelation and not from some kind of mystic, subjective experience.
0: true. Sure. Well, you mentioned the word tongues, and, and let's begin by looking at that phrase, speaking in tongues. It it sounds kind of mystical or esoteric when we say it that way. Might that be a kind of misleading translation of the original text? I mean, where do we get the phrase from in the Bible? And, and to summarize, what do you think the gift
1: was? Well, if you look at the root word for tongue and the tongues in the Greek, tongue or tongues, it's from a root word, glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A. And at the root, it just means an organ of speech, our language. And so over time, uh, when we th- think about the biblical definition of tongues, we say speaking in tongues is the ability given by God in, in a supernatural way. Uh, the Spirit of God gives us the ability to speak a known language uh, that we've never learned. And so that was the message in First Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 13 and 14, you Can can you imagine uh, how wonderful that would be from the missionary endeavor for the early church? And so, I guess in summary, the word tongues means language. And so if people say, I speak in tongues, I just, in my mind, translate that, I speak in languages that I've never learned. And so, if that definition is correct, you already know, Chris, that that takes care of a lot of the other competing philosophies of tongues that aren't anything except A bunch of words repeated over and over and over with some kind of, you know, Eskimo mantra.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and we're going to be talking about that in a second uh you know w- one of the things that comes to mind in case people uh question whether or not we're um speaking accurately about what languages means i mean I'm thinking of several passages in revelation where uh where John writes that people from all tribes nations tongues, and uh you know stuff like that clearly they're not speaking gibberish or or anything else they're they're talking about the languages of of human civilizations so
1: well and and if you ask yourself the question, what would be beneficial for a church? So 1 Corinthians 12 says that the Spirit of God gives sovereignly gifts to the local church. How would it benefit the church, other people, if you were given a gift of some kind of private prayer language and repeating things over and over and over? How does it benefit other people? And so you make a good point with Revelation and you think practically, how does it help the church? I believe that the Spirit of God has given me the gift of teaching, and so it's not for me. I mean, I get a benefit of it, from it, of course, but it's for other people, and so how does this help other people when I'm just saying some kind of funny thing, repeated over and over and over?
0: Yeah, and, and we're going to get into that passage a little bit later, but first, you mentioned you used the phrase, you know, prayer language. Um uh, it, uh, summarize for us what you think charismatics believe they 're doing when they think that they 're exercising the gift. I know that it sounds like repeated you know syllables, but but what do they think that they're doing?
1: Well, the private prayer language comes from uh, Romans chapter eight, uh, and sometimes I think it 's in the spirit filled life uh, study Bible uh, in jude twenty I think maybe they use that as well but romans eight twenty six the spirit himself emphatically. If you ever read the Bible and it's got himself in there, you know it's emphatic because there's an additional word there in the original. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so, eisegetically, they uh, interpret that passage that that means we are the ones who are praying uh, with groanings too deep for words. But the text says that's the Spirit himself interceding for us. And so people, like I said earlier, they want to communion with God. They want to pray to God. They want to experience God. And so how do you do that? It's difficult. Holy life is difficult. And so what do you do? Uh, do you pray? Do you read through the Psalms and pray? Uh, it's hard to stay on track when you pray. You think about your to-do list when you pray. It's easier to just get in the closet. And I've been there. Lock myself up in the closet for an hour and just start chanting things over and over and over again. It's way easier. But Romans 8.26 doesn't talk about speaking in tongues at all. It has nothing to do with the heavenly prayer language. That is the Spirit of God interceding for us. And so, to answer your question, Charismatics like to use that verse out of context so they have a some kind of communion with God, some kind of uh, special, I don't know, sensation, warmth, feeling uh, of closeness. And that's where they get the private prayer language, our heavenly prayer language, is from Romans 8.
0: Hmm. And, is, and is this idea or, or, or of a, of a heavenly, heavenly prayer language, or at least the way that they practice it, is that something that you see only in Christian circles? Or is it something unique to Christianity? Or at least uh, well, their form of Christianity, anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, in my research, I found that Muslims have spoken in tongues, uh, Eskimos of Greenland, Quakers, Mormons, actually Joseph Smith, uh, believed in the gift of tongues, along with visions and everything else. Tibetan monks, uh, they speak in tongues. Those who are in the occult speak in tongues. Mystery religions of the Greece-Roman world, a lot of them did. And then, of course, as time goes on, those in Christianity, are who the, who would call themselves Christians, uh, Shakers, Irvingites, Jansenists, uh, Sevenals. So a lot of people say they speak in tongues.
0: Yeah. And actually I found uh, you know from some research that I've done that there've been studies that compare what Pentecostal communities are doing with non-Christian rituals in some of the places you've talked about as well as Africa and Japan and they've examined the sounds the syllables the phrases the rhythm accent intonation all that kind of stuff and they've they've been able to show that there's virtually no meaningful distinction whatsoever. Um I find that interesting.
1: Well, and I know we're jumping the gun here, but it is interesting because these are all things that humans can do. Uh, You don't need the Spirit of God to do these things because when unbelievers and believers both both do them, you know it's not the Holy Spirit's work. And so uh, I don't know about tongues today, most likely psychological for these Christians, uh, but certainly the possibility of some kind of occult thing or satanic thing. I think it's usually just a learned behavior. I have an interesting quote, Chris, from a linguist uh, that leads into what you're just talking about. William Samarin, S-A-M-A-R-I-N, and he taught linguistics at the University of Toronto. Here's what he said. Over a period of five years, I have taken part in meetings in Italy, Holland, Jamaica, Canada, and the United States. I have observed old-fashioned Pentecostals and Neo-Pentecostals. I've been in small meetings at private homes as well as in mammoth public meetings. I've seen such different cultural settings and found among Puerto Ricans of the Bronx, snake handlers of the Appalachians, and Russian Molokans in Los Angeles." And here's what he ends up saying. Glossolalia, or tongues, is indeed like language in some way, but this is only because the speaker unconsciously wants it to be language. Yet, in spite of superficial similarities, glossolalia is fundamentally not language. So Samron says this, I've studied linguistics all my life, and as I travel the world, I see that there's a cadence, there's a rhythm. Things sound like a language, but it has nothing to do with the language fundamentally. And so uh, what people do today, I don't know what they're doing, but uh, it's, it's not a language. Mm.
0: You know, just really briefly, one of, one of the ways I think you've demonstrated that this isn't a language in your podcast is you've given some examples of way pe- ways charismatics are often taught, uh you know, how to begin to speak in tongues. Can you give some examples of those?
1: I think I knew you were going to ask that, Chris.
0: Yeah, you did.
1: <laughs> well, you know, people are coached and trained in the speaking languages Uh of supposed languages all the time. Uh, before I give you my personal examples, sure. I've got a coloring book here for charismatics. Uh, it's an older one, but it's called "I've Been Filled with the Holy Spirit," and it's an eight-page book for kids. and And it's interesting, Chris, because it says First uh, Corinthians fourteen four: He that speaks in an unknown tongue builds himself up. And then it's got a picture of kind of a smiling weightlifter. Named Spirit Man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh he's got one of those kind of clouds that come out of him, so you know what he's saying or thinking. And it says this. This is printed. Bali odi dama talas sita noma. And that's exactly <laughs> right. Made sure I didn't mispronounce it. And so, you know, to me that was kind of like Lennon and McCartney, obla Oblada obla da life goes on. But uh so you know, people are taught how to do this because It's not a language that the Spirit of God gives at salvation sovereignly, like in the early church. You have to make this stuff up. And so for me, I remember John MacArthur's father, Jack MacArthur, a charismatic pastor, grabbed his arm to try to get him to speak in tongues. And he said, I want you to say Chickamaca Hilo. (laughs) uh, Jack MacArthur said, number one. Don't touch me. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. My wife was told to repeat shamana, shamana, pop, 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 over and over and over. Uh, you know, if there's the old joke about I should have bought a Honda, you say it really fast, and maybe it'll kick in. I should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda. So there's lots of ways you can kind of do it for me. I just began to groan. I guess I took the Bible literally enough, and so I began to groan on my bed uh, and just hoping it would kick in, you know, if you ever rode, ride a motorcycle and you can't turn the thing over, you've got to stand up practically on your bike and then use the kickstart to get that thing going, and so I just kept kind of trying to give it more gas and groan and groan and groan, and uh, like I said on my, my radio show, my dog was there at the time, and she she thought I was she thought I was hurt because I just kept groaning oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> because the text says in Romans 8 groaning and so she came up and she started licking me and then I thought you know what I've got a dog that's somehow satanically oppressed or possessed <laughs> she is trying to stop my full experience and I want everything that God has for me and so I said in the name of Jesus I rebuke you And uh, that dog named uh, that dog is dead, but uh, her name was Marley, after course Bob Marley. And so I said, Marley, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, and she went and laid down. She had her tail between her legs. I thought, see, who needs speaking in tongues when I can (laughs) rebuke Satan out of a dog? Right. So uh, that's like that old movie with that old that Ken Russell was in, uh, called The Thing. You should watch The Thing, and then you could think about my dog. I'll do that. I rebuked her again as I started, and it didn't work, and I thought, this is kind of silly. Uh, There's another illustration uh, from a book printed by Women's Aglow Fellowship 40 years ago. It's called Receive All God Has to Give. And here's what it says in the book. Quote, by faith, open your mouth and begin to speak whatever new words or sounds that come to you. End quote. And they take Psalm 81, out of context, open your your mouth wide and I'll fill it. So there's just a few illustrations of how you have to teach people to speak in tongues. And that's one more reason why it obviously can't be the biblical definition of tongues. It can't be the biblical example of tongues in Acts 2, in Acts 10, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, because those languages were unlearned and given to the, the people of God for the benefit of other people for judgment of Israel, uh, and they never had to learn them. So I think it's pretty corny, and I think unbelievers think it's corny, too, when these people are just saying a bunch of stuff that never doesn't mean anything.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Well, let's let's dive into what I think is the clearest example of the gift of, of tongues in action. It's Acts chapter 2. What happens there at Pentecost, and, and which of the two views we've talked about, human languages or uh, heavenly prayer language, does, does Acts 2 support?
1: Well, it's interesting because Acts 2 is different almost. Well, it's not almost different. It is different because you've got two miracles going on. You've got languages that people don't, haven't learned, um, and they're speaking in those languages. But then you've got the listeners, and they're all hearing their own language there. And so if you pick it up in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 29, uh, excuse me, verse 9, I find it interesting that Luke, the physician, is going out of his way to make sure all these different nations are listed so we can understand uh, specifically what's happening. And so I'm not going to pronounce them all, but if you see them all in Acts 2, 9, Parthenians, Medes, you've got people from Mesopotamia, Pontus, Asia. In verse 10, it talks about Egypt, Rome, Jews, Proselytes. Verse 11, Cretans and Arabs. Then in the text says in verse 11, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And so that's why they were amazed. That's why they knew the Spirit of God had to be involved. Verse 12, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? This was an act of God, the sovereign grace of God working in these people. This was not a bunch of, you know, babbling people. Uh, and. Unbelievers even knew something was going on, and so what do they say in verse 13? Others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. The hard-hearted nature of unbelief, refusing to accept this truth, they say, oh, they're just full of sweet wine. And so, I know you asked me the question on uh, the email, is this like a hearing gift that people have? You've got both the gift of tongues here and then the gift of hearing I'm sure the Charismatics want the gift of hearing to be here, but the four times you've got gifts in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, you you won't see any gift of hearing. And so I think it would be improper to say this is now the gift of hearing that's ongoing. Yes, it was a gift for them to hear, but I don't think the Charismatics uh, can claim that for themselves today.
0: Yeah, well, and I would also point out that in the passages where gifts are given, they're given to believers, uh, and these are unbelievers uh, who are being preached to, and so it would surprise me that uh, that a gift of hearing, like, so, for example, a charismatic might say, well, they're given the gift of interpretation of tongues, you know, uh, but, you know, who are those given to? They're given to believers, and these are the very people that are being preached to. So, I mean, I, I don't know, I wouldn't buy that. Now, I, I do think, though, that it's interesting that, the skeptics in the audience there were saying, Oh, they're full of sweet wine. And, and some charismatics have tried to say, See, there clearly what they were speaking was some sort of a, you know, gobbledygook, at least to the listener. Um, wh- what do you make of that? Does, does the fact that some of the people listening thought they were drunk mean that they couldn't understand what was being said?
1: Well, I think it's a fair question. I think they're still trying to find any way to get some private prayer language that means nothing so they bypass their mind. And that leads me to the bigger thought before I answer your question. Christianity is a religion that we have to use our mind. I'm not saying we are feeling less. Uh, I'm not saying we have no emotions. God has given us emotions. We're image bearers of God, and we have all kinds of emotions. Uh, But our emotions get the best of us, and we are uh, essentially, as Christians, Using our minds because as an intellectual and again, not only intellectual, but this is an intellectual religion We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart soul Jesus adds the word mind and strength when you go back to the Mosaic law You will not see to love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength It will just be heart soul and strength is Jesus adding to scripture? No for the Jew Heart included mind. It was Mission Control Center. It was the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, for instance. Mm -hmm. It was the controlling agent. And so for us, we say heart and head. It's different. But for the Jews, it was the same. And so Jesus makes explicit what was implicit. You are to worship God with your mind. And so all these different ways, we try to not use our minds. I mean, the mind is a terrible thing to waste. We are lazy people, by definition. We have to be prodded along, and so why would we want to bypass our mind and just do useless vain repetitions? So back to Acts chapter 2. The question really is, why would Luke include all these different peoples? I mean, all those different countries and all those different peoples. Well, the answer is he wanted to make it crystal clear, perfectly clear, that the disciples were speaking in foreign languages, Mm. not some kind of babble. And so when, when we see this Gromach, he says it must be in foreign languages and it must be the foreign languages of those who are present when the gift of interpretation is not exercised. So why list all these people? So we know for sure it's not some kind of babble. So when people say, oh, look at, there's this new full sweet wine, look at that. Uh, I just see that as exegetically simple. These people have hardened hearts, and this is exactly what unbelievers do. This is just like Romans 1. That's the nature of unbelief.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's kind of funny. I struggled with this verse until I happened upon a commentary which pointed out, People can think that what you're like, people can understand what you're saying, but think that you're foolish for saying it. And so I don't see any reason why they couldn't understand what the disciples were saying, but feel like they were uh, drunk for saying what they were saying. Uh, you know, they, they were speaking about the wonders of God, you know, and as hardened uh, unbelievers, um, it's no wonder they would think that they were drunk, you know. <laughs> so I don't think there's any evidence there that they were speaking uh, something other than human languages. Now... So I think that it's, it's pretty evident from this passage that the gift of tongues is the ability to speak human languages. But even some who would agree with what we've demonstrated about Pentecost would still say that it was an exception to the rule. So I'm going to quote uh, Wayne Grudem, for example, who's great in a lot of ways. I'm not so sure I agree with him here, though. He says, sometimes this gift may result in speaking in a human language that the speaker has not learned, but ordinarily it seems that it will involve speech in a language that no one understands, whether that be a human language or not. So... I want to look at some of the passages that some will point to as evidence for a non-human sort of heavenly prayer language. And, and first, and I think probably easiest to dismiss, some have pointed to Mark sixteen seventeen, where Jesus allegedly says that those who believe will speak with new tongues. If tongues are human languages, in what sense could they be new?
1: <laughs> well, I think the I think the burden of proof is on the charismatics. There, the big picture, as you know, Chris, with Mark chapter sixteen, is that text even in the Bible. And so, I don't think 16, 9 and following is found in any good manuscript. Uh, I think you're going to see right away, verses 9 through 20, having all kinds of issues. And without trying to throw out a verse because somehow I, it doesn't fit my theology, uh, I will say this. Even if I did believe Mark sixteen nine through 20 uh, were in the canon, I would say that if you're going to have speaking in tongues verses 17 and following, then you have to have the rest too. And you have to have picking up serpents, you have to have drinking deadly poison, and you have to have laying your hands on the sick so they'll recover. And so if you're going to say tongues, I don't mean you, but if people say tongues are operative today based on this, uh, then they need to do the other ones like, of course, what I wouldn't want them to do, drinking poison and handling snakes. Actually, you know, we're always saying these Appalachian snake handlers and there are certain people who will drink watered-down, diluted arsenic and other kinds of poison. We always say, I'll oh, look at them, they're crazy. But I think they're more consistent than the typical charismatic today that just naively and ignorantly throws out Mark chapter 16 to somehow seal the case. And so what does speaking in new tongues mean? I have no idea and I don't even really want to know because it's not in the text and it's added along with this sinful presumption of, Drinking poison. Nobody talks like that in the Bible, uh, except Satan, to say to Jesus, "Why don't you jump off the edge of that pinnacle <laughs> and I uh, could save you?" Right. Uh, that's not what Christians are to do. Uh, certainly, uh, we act presumptuously uh, and sinfully, but we're never told to do that. And so, that's to me one more reason why we ought not to include Mark chapter sixteen verses nine to twenty. And for those who are listening today, just get your Bible. Any Bible will do short of the message or the good news or something yeah. like that. See a little asterisk there, and it'll say at the end of verse 8, verses 9 to 20 are not found in the original manuscript, and I think that will be very, very helpful. So they're not in the best manuscripts. Uh, they're teaching doctrines that are strange and incoherent to the rest of the canon, and so they'll speak with new tongues. Um, you know, I... I don't know what the new means because I've never studied it long enough, Chris, to figure it out because I knew this wasn't in the canon.
0: True. Yep, I I agree. Although, you know, you you could say, even if this were in the canon, and of course the issue of the Appalachian snake handlers would come into play, but, you know, it, it could just mean new to the people who speak them. You know, I don't see any problem with that. But like you said, I don't think that we should spin our wheels understanding it since it wasn't in the original. Now, how about 1 Corinthians 13? I just heard this from a from a show that I respect um, where Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol." Does this indicate that the gift of tongues might sometimes result in the speaking of some sort of non-human language spoken by angels?
1: Well, I think, again, here's what happens. Charismatics have an experience, and to their credit, they'll try to validate it because they know Scripture. You've got Wayne Grudem. He's he's no slouch. He's a godly man. Uh, he, By the way, this whole idea of charismatic Calvinists, that's a fairly new idea in church history. Piper, Mahaney, Grudem, and, and these men know the text. And so if you've got somebody like that and you say, well, I've had this experience... Uh, where do I go to somehow validate it? Now, I don't know what Grudem does with this passage here, but to me, when you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul is not commending them. Paul is chastening the Corinthians. They're acting improperly. They're acting carnally. And he says here, you know, I'm going to move things around. And instead of talking about tongues lastly, like I did in the last chapter, I'm going to um, put this first. Tongues are mentioned in the last they were mentioned last in the last three lists in chapter 12, but now mentioned first. Why? Because he's going to say, you know, tongues are fleeting. Tongues aren't the end all, and he's going to get after them. And so this is just language. This is this is the problem with being a wooden literalist, that you say, well, see, there it is, the tongues of angels. But this is hypothetical language. If I speak with the tongues of men, then he says, and of angels, He's not even talking about speaking in tongues in this chapter. He's talking about the practice of love. And so you can't go to this verse and say, see, there it is, speaking with the tongues of angels. He's using a figure of speech. He's using a language to teach us that love is the importance. But do not have love. I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So I think the Corinthians did all these things, not in love, not for other people. Paul chastens them using language. Uh, that he would often use, and he is not trying to tell us, that, well, we've got another category. We've got special angelic language. Because if he does, I don't know how to interpret angelic language. Uh, I don't know what it's good for. I know a- angels do speak, because we've got examples of that. But I think that's just jamming stuff into the context here, uh, into the passage that Paul never intended.
0: Yeah, and, and we're going to look at some of that, in a second in 1 Corinthians 14, but one thing I do want to chime in on, it it, it seems to me kind of like Paul is using hyperbole, and like you said, hypothetical speech here as well, because he also talks about the gift of prophecy, and yet somebody with the gift of prophecy doesn't know all mysteries and have all knowledge, as he says in verse 2. And then he says, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I don't see any evidence that the biblical authors actually felt that they could have enough faith to physically demolish mountains. So I mean, it seems to me that, this is hyperbolic speech and, and not to be, as you said, taken in a wooden literal sense. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I think that's you've done your homework and that's exactly the right way to do it. If we do grant, okay, there's angelic speech, okay, so what changes? I speak now with the tongues of angels. Okay, Paul's speaking with the tongues of angels. I don't know where I go with that because how am I going to understand it? I mean, language communicates thoughts and words and ideas, and so... Now the Charismatics are going to try to prove with that, that's uh, utterance, that just doesn't make sense, and it's repeated over and over and over. When angels speak in the Bible, it's a language. And so either way, the Charismatics don't have a leg to stand on because angelic language is spoken language. Hmm. Yeah, if we were to, you, to take it literally. You look, the, you look at the announcements of of the birth of Jesus with the angels or the announcements of <laughs> yeah. the Baptist, it's not Chickamaca, high, low, shaman, shaman, pop, pop, pop.
0: That's right. It's Hebrew or Greek or <laughs> Aramaic, you know. That's that's a good point. That's right. Um, well, but but let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14 because that's a passage that I think is often cited in support of this understanding of tongues. Why does Paul say in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 14 that uh one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Doesn't this suggest, uh, well, I don't think it does, but does it suggest that the gift is some sort of heavenly prayer language that humans can't understand?
1: Well, I think what we have to do, and for those who are listening, the first thing when someone asks you a question, well, what about this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is not to immediately go to that verse, but to think big picture and to think, okay, 1 Corinthians, why did Paul write it? And Paul was dealing with uh, some questions of, Morality in the church, lack of unity, lack of uh, morality, lawsuits, etc. And then he was answering questions. And so Paul comes to the section in 12 to 14. And this church is not doing the right thing. And what he's actually doing in chapter 14 is he's not emphasizing the gift of tongues at all. Actually, he's doing the exact opposite. He's not trying to elevate the gift of tongues, but say, you know what, you're abusing it. And prophecy or the proclaimed word is better, and he's going to say that in verses 1 to 6. Prophecy is superior, and we'll go to verse 1, because that's often quoted too, Chris, so I might as well read it. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So first of all, he says, I want you to desire spiritual gifts. Now the first question is, how can we desire spiritual gifts if in chapter 12 they're sovereignly given at conversion for common good? Well, because here he's using plural language. If you were King James, he'd say, ye, you as a church should pursue spiritual gifts. I'm correcting them. I'm putting them in order. I'm making sure you do the right thing. But I'm not saying you shouldn't want spiritual gifts. As a church, you should want spiritual gifts, especially prophesy. Then he moves to verse 2, the one you asked me about. And there's two different ways you could look at it. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. By the way, no uh, change in a capital in the original text are a minuscule, and so you could either translate that to God, G capital, or to small g, to God. Uh, For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mystery. So here's what's happening here, and I'll give you my view, and then we can kind of go back and forth and... Hey, Chris, it's your show, so you can disagree (laughs) with me if you want. For one who speaks in a tongue. uh, If you look through 1 Corinthians 14, you're going to see the word tongue and tongues. It's used back and forth. Singular, tongue, no S. Tongues, plural, it's got the S. Singular is used in this verse, verse 4, 13, 14, 19, and 27. Now, the way MacArthur uses it is the way I use it. Why does sometimes he say singular tongue and not plural tongues. Well, here's what the King James did to help us. It put unknown in front of all the verses that had the singular. So now the people are listening are thinking, boy, this is, you know, college class. What am I doing? Hang in there just for a second. It's <laughs> 14, 2. One who speaks in a tongue, our King James says, unknown tongue or unknown language. Think about gibberish for a second. Is gibberish singular or plural? So, when I say "shit about a hundred shit about a hundred shit about a hundred mm. is that is that plural or singular? Well, since there's no components of language, it is singular it's just all one gobbledygook mess and so the way MacArthur translates it, I think he's right for one who speaks in tongue gobbledygook, um singular is used of gibberish because MacArthur says gibberish can't be plural it's mm. just gibber eye. it's gibbereye. <laughs> So, one who speaks gibberish does not speak to men, but to gods. It's, it's not to men. It can't, gibberish can't be to men because men can't understand it. And he's speaking to some kind of pagan god because it's actually not the real god. For no one understands. He doesn't understand. The god doesn't understand. But in his spirit, he speaks mystery. So Paul says that when it comes to this gibberish, he only, there's only two exceptions for uh, that word tongue. Uh, not meaning uh, something other than gibberish. So, Paul, I think here is saying, you know what, uh, this is pagan, ecstatic, counterfeit speech, and he's not speaking to the real God, he's speaking to gods. So, there's my quick exegesis of that verse.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I actually hadn't come across that one. I, I had in mind a, a different understanding, and, and I'd be interested to know what your take on this is. Uh, I, I've sometimes heard it said that in, in context here, what's, what's being spoken of is somebody who speaks in a human language that they've been granted by God, but in a congregation in which none of the people that are in attendance are able to understand that particular human language. And so because, because this person is, is speaking a human language that nobody in attendance can hear or can understand, then it's only God who, uh, to whom the words could actually be directed. And that's why the, for example, in verse 13, he says, let, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Uh, if, if, if in a congregation where nobody speaks that particular human language, then, then he better be able to interpret it or else it's gonna not edify the church. Is, is that a, a possible understanding of the text, do you think?
1: Oh, well, I guess it could be. It could be a wrong possibility. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't thought about it that much, but it seemed, you know, it seems to make sense. Uh, both of us, what we'd have to figure out is uh, why tongue and not tongues? Mm. Let's just say there's no difference. Uh, and we both have to figure out, is it going to be to God capital or to some kind of pagan God? But I think at the end of the day, we're both going to agree that what Paul is after is he's promoting prophecy and he's demoting tongues yeah. so i find it very fascinating that charismatics when they want to prove to me speaking in tongues is so great so invaluable so crucial they go to first corinthians 14 which de-emphasizes it and then verse three it says but the one who prophesies prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation and so uh, people say we're really into tongues i just say there's something better and that is the public proclamation of the word of god
0: yeah i definitely agree uh, you know but but as far as whether or not we're only to be seeking to edify the church one some, something that charismatics will sometimes point to is when paul says uh in verse uh, for that one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. In fact, here's what one charismatic author I've seen has said. In answering the question, what does speaking in tongues do for you? He says, it does exactly what the Bible says it does. He who speaks in tongues edifies himself. The word edify means to build up or charge up, much like charging up a battery. We all need a spiritual charge. All of us at times feel spiritually drained. One of God's ways to charge your spirit is through speaking in tongues. Now, is that really what Paul meant? And, and even if we are to seek to edify the church, is it is it reasonable to want to charge up one's spiritual battery by speaking in tongues?
1: Well, I think the way that Paul, if Paul were here and he wanted you to charge up your batteries, uh, I think Paul would say, uh, Church, uh, you've forgotten about Christ Jesus, and you've forgotten about who you are in Christ, you've forgotten about the riches of triune salvation, and he would begin to preach the gospel back to you i don't think he'd say you know what i think you need to do something christianity is summarized by the great indicative and we respond with the imperative and the indicative is all the things uh all the things that god has done uh, for our salvation and how he has alone worked that salvation and the good news is exactly that a declaration of news it's not do something uh, the response to that good news is to do something, repent, believe, trust, etc. But for the Christian, I mean, we all want our batteries charged up. We're tired. We're weak. We've been tempted. We've fallen. Uh, we've sinned. And so we need our batteries charged. I'm not against that. Uh, it does kind of sounds like charismatic talk, though, spiritually drained and all that. If you want to charge, I don't think it has anything to do with what you should do. You should say, you know, Lord, I'm weak, and I need to remember and rehearse the gospel again. What's important? First Corinthians 15, three and four. It's the gospel that was delivered of first importance. So that's my first comment. My second comment is, let's use that singular plural, plural again, Chris. Look at verse four. One who speaks in a tongue, gibberish, edifies himself. But one who prophesies, prophesies, edifies the church. And so if I'm right, Paul is basically doing this with sarcasm. He says, you really want to be into tongues and speaking gibberish, well, you're not edifying anybody else except yourself because nobody understands what you're doing. So if you want to go high, low, shaman, shamana, shaman, a pop, 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 it might help you in some way, uh, sarcasm, uh, but it's not going to help the church. So I think that's the better way to take that verse as well. So there again, the charismatics are dying to try to find a verse to help them with this experience of, Tongues, which really isn't even tongues because it's not really a language.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And actually, I think that the the idea of him speaking sarcastically uh, applies in the in the possibility that I presented as well, because somebody who's exercising a gift. Uh, in a church in which nobody can understand the language that he's speaking. Um, all he's doing is, pu- is puffing himself up, making himself appear to be super spiritual. And so I think that the edifies there is, is, uh, sarcastic, like you said. Uh, but either way, I think you're right. You know, these are, these are two understandings that we need to, uh, look at and, and understand the, the text. But, That aside, um, I mean, I I definitely think that both of these are better than the the charismatic understanding of the text. But what I've found is that what the Bible says about tongues is really moot for a lot of charismatics because many seem to believe what they believe about tongues based on their feelings and emotions uh, and not on what the Bible says. Do you find that to be the case as well? And and what do you think is the danger of understanding the Bible in light of our feelings and experiences rather than the other way around, testing our feelings and experiences in light of the Bible?
1: Well, that's the real issue, and you've nailed it, Chris, is what comes first, experience or uh, the Word of God. And so Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 basically says this. He said, I saw Jesus with my eyes. I heard God with my ears as Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration had His glory, His internal glory shine out on the outside. I heard God, the Father, say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And even though I personally was there, I personally experienced it with two of my senses, maybe more with thundering-like words, and he felt it. He said, you know what, I've got something that's more sure than experience, and that is the prophetic word, the word of God, the scriptures. I've got something more sure than that. And so that's the problem with evangelicalism today. That's the problem with Sandy Patty and... um the uh, Amy Grant, where you know you say, well, I just think God wants me to be happy, and therefore I've got to divorce my husband. Yeah. It's all about experience. This experience, God, experiencing God book. Of course, we went to experiencing God, great title, but the ways we are experiencing him uh, outside scripture is all wrong. And so people are emotionally driven, and they go from one emotion to the next to the next. And that's the problem with the charismatic movement. That's why charismatics are leaving charismatic churches in droves going sadly uh to messianic Judaism because there're more experiences and things they can do there uh and still uh you know do something. Uh, some charismatics stay of course and some charismatics go to, you know, non-charismatic churches, but you're right, it's all about experience, something we've got to feel or do. BB Warfield said there are two religions in the world. The one religion Christianity is we hear from God from the outside, outside alone, from an external revealed fixed source. And he said, every other religion in the world, you experience God or gods uh, through internal feelings are internal plus external. And so people are exchanging Christianity for paganism and they don't even know it.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. I do want to say one thing, though, just for uh, some of my listeners. I, I do want to be careful not to car- characterize all Messianic churches um, as part of the movement that I think that you correctly decry. Um, I have friends who are uh, Jewish Christians who aren't involved in the kind of movement you're talking about and yet would still call themselves Messianic Jews. But we'll save that for another episode. I can understand See, why. Yeah, it's,
1: your, it's your show. They can write me with their, their hate mail. No, they're – <laughs> There are some me- wonderful Messianic Jews. I'm just thinking that uh, they, some charismatics leave to go there because there are things, again, that they can do or feel or put up a booth in their backyard, for instance. And to me, the bigger issue with Messianic Judaism is Ephesians 2. What do we do with the law that separated Jews and Gentiles, the Mosaic law, by purpose separating both of them? Uh, we say now... Uh, we went Gentiles and Jews together in a local church. We've got to get rid of that Mosaic law that created an enmity between the two. And I think they've continued that Mosaic law. And so, I, you know. No, I I, I, I agree with you. (laughs)
0: I agree with you, but, but again, uh, and obviously I don't want to get too sidetracked, and I, I will direct all the hate mail to you, but, uh, not, not You can, all, you can edit this out? No, I, we don't need to do that, uh, but, but, but not all messianic congregations, um, encourage either Jewish believers or Gentile believers to follow the Mosaic covenant, and that's why I say I don't want to- I, don't, I want to be careful not to lump all messianic messianic congregations in, together into the movement that I think that you're correctly decrying right now, vis a vis the the mosaic covenant. So, but anyway, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to edit this out. I think it's good for my listeners, and I'll just direct all the hate mail towards you. But but there is one. Okay. I'm I'm nice. Know? I'm nicer in person, actually. See. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um now, one more very important question about tongues. Some claim, e- even if we put aside everything that we've talked about as far as the nature of tongues, some claim that tongues are either the indication that someone has been truly saved, or at the very least that tongues are for every single Christian. Uh, again, if we, even if we were to share that understanding of the gift, is it biblical to think that all Christians should receive it?
1: Well, when you look at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Chris, I can only go on scripture and say, uh, Paul says that there's something greater than tongues. He wasn't, he wasn't anti-tongues. He was anti-gibberish. But he was a- a- anti-tongues used in a way that was chaotic and unorderly and everybody wanting to be showed, uh, show themselves and what they could do and no interpretation, no order. And so I don't think Paul's anti-tongues. Uh, but one thing's for certain. When the Spirit of God sovereignly gives spiritual gifts to people, uh, he does it at his own good pleasure. Just like he sovereignly saves some and doesn't save others, he sovereignly gives uh, some people the gift of teaching, some the gift of help, some the gifts of mercy, etc. And so the answer to your question is I'm trying to say it as nicely as I can for those that think the sine qua non of Christian experience is speaking in tongues, uh, would not consider properly First Corinthians chapter 12 and how spiritual gifts are for the common good. So if we're all afoot, we're all ahead, we're all hands, it doesn't help us out and so we need to have different people gifted in different ways i can't do what i do without faithful members here of the church serving in other ways and so someone says the sine qua non of speaking in tongues you're not even a christian if you aren't or you're not ha- you haven't arrived uh, well then they haven't arrived either yet because they do not know how to speak a language that they haven't learned what they're trying to say is the sine qua non of Christian experiences be, saying a bunch of gibberish that Eskimos do, uh, I would politely disagree
0: I would too, and I would point hmm. out that in first corinthians uh, Twelve, you know, verse thirty. All do not have the gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? I mean, the whole context of the spiritual gifts is, as you said, a distribution individually to each believer, uh, where each person exercises a different gift for the common good. So, um, I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And 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 I might just say that that view is really devastating to many people who buy into that nonsense that if they don't speak in tongues, they're somehow less spiritual or not saved. I mean, it destroys people's faith if they don't speak in tongues or if they feel like they can't do it without forcing themselves to they're gonna think that they're well, at the very least not saved but but you know just um uh inferior or or you know whatever i I can only imagine the kind of um depression that kind of uh, teaching has got to lead believers into you know.
1: Well, that's exactly right. We've got the haves and the have-nots, and you've got exactly what Paul didn't want in First Corinthians chapter one, two, three, and four. He spent more time on disunity than any other problem in all of First Corinthians. They were following people, and so now the same kind of disunity. We have the gift, you don't, and by the way, you don't have it because you've got a problem. There's sin in your life that's unconfessed. You don't have enough faith, and so it says have and have not. And and I find you know the sad news is when people think the Christian experience of speaking in tongues those people if they are truly saved they are so shallow in their walk so uh, so unmoored to Christian truth that they're mostly carnal people and they are certainly not the people that are transformed into Christ likeness like other people who don't have the gift of uh, Babel. By the way, I would say, too, uh, for those who are into Babel, Jesus said when you're praying in Matthew 6, 7, do not use meaningless <laughs> repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus specifically said, when you pray, don't pray the same gibberish over and over and over. The Greek word is bada logosete, logo, where we get the word. He says this, when you pray, don't pray this way bada 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 don't pray that way and so uh i'll go with the words of jesus on this one
0: i absolutely agree and you know i'm sure we could talk about tongues for a lot longer there's certainly questions as you know that i've omitted because of the time that we've got um and i'm really enjoying it but this podcast would go on for hours so i think i think we'll begin to wrap up there's something that i like to do at the end of every interview something that uh uh, that I think is really powerful and moving in a lot of cases, and that's ask my guest to leave us with a, a sort of parting message. What would you most like to see me and my listeners take away from this discussion?
1: Okay, before I answer that, Chris, are you sure you don't want to ask me about cessationism?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, if you've got the time, we can go into it.
1: <laughs> um, no, it's your show. Here, what would I, what would I encourage people to do mostly? By the way, the reason why I am a cessationist is because if I look at the gifts in the New Testament, uh, it's very interesting to think about chronology. Four books in the New Testament talk about spiritual gifts. First Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, First Peter. And I'd encourage your listeners sometime to look up when those books were written. And so uh, if you look up when those books were written, you'll soon find out that the earliest one, any guesses, Chris, which is the earliest one, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, or First Peter?
0: Boy, uh honestly, I don't know.
1: I know I'm putting you on the spot. I couldn't That's okay. probably do it. Got my head either. 54 A.D. close to 54 A.D. First Corinthians. The rest were later. I find it interesting that only First Corinthians, the earliest book, talks about the sign gifts. Romans doesn't talk about sign gifts. Why? It's later. The canon's closing up. Ephesians, First Peter, only First Corinthians. And so, one of the reasons why I'm a cessationist is because nobody's been able to answer the question. For me, not like they owe me an answer, but in my mind, I can't get around this. Why would spiritual gifts be needed? Of course, the the continuationist is going to ask me, show me a verse where they cease. And I wouldn't look at 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 8 to 10. I don't think that proves anything. That's the eternal state. But my question is, why are signed gifts needed? If signed gifts were to point to Christ, used mainly in the apostolic era, used really only in three times in all of history of the world during the time of moses and joshua elijah and elisha and jesus and the apostles you add all that time period together it's about 100 years 100 years of the universe's existence there were sign gifts and during those three time periods moses and joshua elijah and elisha jesus and the apostles what was happening And what was happening is the canon of Scripture was coming together. So now that I've got the canon, why do I need something to point me to the Word of God when I have it? And so I guess when my charismatic friends can answer the question, why do I need sign gifts, uh, then I might stop being my cessation. Uh, I'd stop being a cessationist. Well,
0: I tell you what, maybe what we'll do is we'll have you on again at some point in the future when I've had a time to try to prepare an answer to that question. Uh.
1: <laughs> okay. No, no problem. I'll get back to the other one. What would I like people to take away the most? If you're a charismatic or you're not a charismatic, what I want you to do the most is, and I think Grudem is good here, Piper Mahaney, three charismatics that model, uh, a desire to be biblically Biblically literate, biblically faithful, and have a fidelity to scripture just to know scripture, to saturate yourself with scripture so you know. Because your heart will deceive you. If you live your life by open door, closed door, I've got a piece about it. Your life is going to be a train wreck. Jonah had a piece about disobeying God in the bottom of the, of the ship. Uh, open doors sometimes should not be walked through because you need wisdom to say, no, I won't do it. Closed doors sometimes need to be knocked down with persistence. You cannot base uh, communication from God on your experience because your heart is wicked. Even believers, our heart is desperately wicked. So you need an external, objective source that is just as true before you were born as today as it will be when you're dead and it is fixed. And you can un- understand the faithfulness of God, His plan, the exaltation of Christ, how the Spirit works by studying the Scriptures. And so, as long as your listeners are doing that, I'm happy. Yeah.
0: Oh, Amen. I agree. Absolutely. Well, how can my listeners find you and No Compromise Radio? And, and for those who might be listening from Massachusetts, where can they find Bethlehem Bible Church, you know, both physically and online?
1: Sure. Well, if you've got hate mail, let me give you the wrong email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you can access No Compromise Radio at NoCompromiseRadio.com. You can pull the podcast up there and you can listen to my interviews with Al Mohler or James White or anybody like that that you want. Um, that's NoCompromiseRadio.com. You can go to Facebook if you want and listen to No Compromise. Type in No Compromise Radio. All the Facebook um, shows are there or you can go to iTunes and type in No Compromise Radio and you can get your iTunes podcast set up or if you're local you can listen at WVNE 760 AM at 3:30s Monday to Friday uh, or I guess you could go to bbcchurch.org find out a uh, little bit about the church and then there's a link to No Compromise Radio there
0: great well I definitely I'm sorry
1: that's a mouthful, I said.
0: Oh, no, no, <laughs> that's all right. I definitely encourage my listeners to, to check out your, your ministry, and um, I just want to thank you again for your time today.
1: Well, thank you, Chris. It was great being on. God bless you.
0: God bless you, too. That was Mike Abendroth from No Compromise Radio, and I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, even if, you know, in the end you disagree. I would encourage you, though, if you do disagree, just to make sure that the Bible and not your experiences is your authority and that you're subjecting yourself to the inerrant wo- holy word of God. I also hope you'll join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast, in which, Lord willing, I'll be interviewing Scott Klusendorf from the Life Training Institute to talk about abortion and how to persuasively communicate the pro life message. Until then. <laughs>